Rachel, I'm kind of glad you came up here because I got to see your boots, which are pretty amazing. Laura won't let me wear my boots with shorts, but I think it looks good. Uh, if you will, open up to Nehemiah chapter 7 this morning. <clears throat> Make your way over there. Uh, full disclosure, I, uh, I almost attached this to the tail end of the sermon last week um, just to, to do it that way because it's, it's kind of scary to preach on a passage that's mostly a list of names. Uh, and, and so I prayed about it, right? And, and in the process, I, I remembered 2 Timothy 3.16. Many of you are probably familiar with this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Uh, and in that sense, the, the Lord put it on my heart to preach all of chapter 7. And uh, so this morning, let's look to this and, and see how the Lord intended to be profitable for us. Now, uh, if you've got it open, right, Nehemiah chapter 7, you, you see that there's 73 verses, and they're mostly a bunch of very difficult to pronounce names. Uh, I'm not going to go through all this. I'm not going to read it out loud, but I do want you to keep it open in front of you, right? We're just going to read the first six verses, but keep it open there. Uh, and, and as we look at these genealogies, right, one of the things I want you to remember, us to remember, is, is that as O. Palmer Robertson says, genealogies defy mythology. And he says this for, for unlike the other ancient stories that deal, you know, uh, Scripture deals with real people in verifiable experiences. And so let's, uh, let's read this, at least the first six verses here, and then we will... We will make our way through the passage bit by bit as we go on today. So, uh, Nehemiah 7, let's begin in verse 1, we'll read through verse 6. Now, when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle charge, over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing, still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard post and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been, been rebuilt. And then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of genealogy of those who come up at the first. And I found written in it, These are the people of God, these were the people of the providence who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. And God of all grace, that you do reveal yourself to us and your word is a blessing of, of more value than a crown of precious gemstones. Make our hearts to know that as true today. O Holy Spirit, Spirit of truth, brighten the darkness within us. Illuminate our minds this Lord's day as we seek to know the profitability of this strange list of dead men. May whatever I speak today that is rightly in accord with your word stick to our memories like glue. And if it not be in accord with your word, may it blow away like threshing floor 
chaff. It's in the name of Jesus, the, the Son, we pray. Amen. Uh, so last weekend, or week rather, we, we learned that Nehemiah's rebuilding project is, is actually finished. It's complete. The gates are installed. The punch list have actually been complete, uh, I believe, right? And, and yet we see that the work continues. He doesn't just pack up his bags and head on back to Susa or wherever the king is at this moment. And, and that's because it's never been ultimately about uh, the walls of an inanimate city. It's always been about the worship of God. It's always been about the flourishing of God's covenant people. Even today, for us, right, on this side of the cross, the, the whole point of, of God redeeming us from sin is, is to bring sinners into relationship with God so, so that we will rightly worship God, so that we will rightly glorify God in our lives. Or as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2.9, uh, God has set us free from sin so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And here in our, our opening verse today, we, we, we see the primacy of worship, right? He is, he is keeping kingdom priorities the actual priority. And the first thing that Nehemiah does is he appoints the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites. Now, just to understand, though, simply put, the gatekeeper's initial job was actually with the temple. They opened, they shut the doors of the temple. And now Nehemiah has widened their responsibilities to the entire city, right? Uh, because there's not a whole lot of them, and the safety of the city is very important. That's what this is about. It's about bodily, physically protection. Now, you and I, we, we live in a safe nation in a very safe town in the middle of, well, nowhere really in Kansas. Uh, and so we don't need to assign guards to our, our, our church, do church doors at this point. But if that ever were to actually change, we, we, we certainly would. And the whole purpose is that you come in here to worship the Lord. There needs to be a sense of feeling safety, right? That you can focus on the Lord uh, so that you can adore the Lord through song and, and everything else without really concern about that. Now, the, the singers here are also appointed. Their, their job was to lead the community in the adoration of the Lord through song. This was about the spiritual well-being of, of God's people, right? First the physical well-being, now the spiritual well-being of his people. He understands what, what our modern culture does not understand very well, and that's that, that you and I, we are created creatures, right? We are by God's good design to be worshipers, and we worship, and I really mean all of us, right? Not just Christians. Everyone is a worshiper. That's, that's why we see people worship fame and worship money and worship music and football and sexuality and luxury and the autonomy of self and so many other things that we, we bow down to and worship in our hearts, if not physically. And, and yet, no one can truly in long-term flourish, right? And unless our, our hearts are satisfied, unless we are genuinely find ourselves learning to worship God, which is who we are designed to, to, to come and to worship. As the third century African, uh, Augustine so famously conceded, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it rests in you. When we gather for worship here on a Sunday morning, our, our minds are lifted above the temporal issues. Right? At least that's our desire. That's the hope. We, we want to pull you out of all the other things that dominate your mind, all your waking moments the rest of the time, worried about things that are due, things you said, things you wish someone else hadn't said, whatever it might be, you might come in here and, and, and let go of all those concerns and, and focus on the Lord for a bit. Right? Which is why I, I regularly 
you know, recommend that you, you, you turn off your phone or put it on airplane mode just, just for this morning so you might come in here and, and rest and worship for a while without those distractions coming in. That you might come and, and reflect on the forgiveness that you have received in Christ and, and that you might remember just the, the actual true depth of God's love for you as, as his people to, to contemplate the goodness of God even, even as your boss remains a, a thorn in your side maybe day by day. Even as talking heads on glowing screens can continue to debate everything outside of these walls, that you might just focus on the Lord and and worship the Lord in peace during this time. And so the temple singers were about leading the people of God into the worship of God. That's the intention of our musicians, our singers as well. The the third appointment Nehemiah makes is the Levites here. This is is about the intellectual well-being of God's people. You see, the Levites function a lot like pastors and teachers in our time. Their, their job was to teach the people of God the word of God so they could explain to them, this is who you are as God's covenant people. This is what's expected of you. This is what the Lord does for you. So they might just understand the, the marvelous reality of the faith that God has called them into, the, the marvelous reality of what it means to be God's chosen people. In short, Nehemiah's installation of the, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites testified to, to the to his faithful concern for the bodies and the faith and the minds of God's people. Now last week, we, we talked about the appointment of Hananiah and, Han- Hananiah, and Hananiah, uh, right? So we're not going to go into that today. Uh, I, I do want you to see this, though, that he gives them these instructions for the gates, right? And, and one of them is you don't open them until it's hot in the day and you, you close them before the end. And, and, and the reason here, right, there's a couple of, of theories here. One is that maybe to create leisurely mornings to remember the Lord, to remember how you're called to be different from the people outside of here, from the world, all the traitors that are going to come through those doors when we open it, in that sense. But it it also might just be to give them full light so they can look off in the distance and say, hey, you know what, I I can see that they are planning to invade us, they're bringing us a gift horse, whatever it might look like, right? To be able to see from a distance what's going on, and in which case it's simply... Uh, simply just security. And, and, and that makes sense since given the declaration in verse 4, right? That the city is wide and large and there's very few people living within the walls. That's a big deal. The info in verse 4 here sets up the rest of the chapter. You see, during construction, Jews from all over had come to the city. They were staying in the city. They were working in the city. They were, they were dwelling together and, and now that the project is done, most of them have returned to their homes outside of the city, gone back where, where, where they really are living. It, it's a lot like, like, you know, us townies experience in May when K-State lets out and everyone suddenly scatters everywhere and, and there's no traffic and you're like, you know what, there's no wait at Taco Lucha, I can walk right in there. And, and all those things are nice, but our town would not flourish if, if that was the way it remained, if it remained empty in, in that way all year long. And that's because cities actually need people to flourish. And in fact, that's why Topeka, I think I pronounced that wrong too, Topeka. You know what, that's the capital of a state. You know what state it is? Which one? Do you know it? No. You're not from here. It's okay. <clears throat> right? It's Kansas. It's our, tap, our, our capital. 
Now, now, Topeka has lost people for a long time now, and they have hoped to lure people to come and live in the city, particularly people who work in the city, but they live outside the city somewhere. A lot of them live in Lawrence, right, where they can live it up in a nice environment. Uh, and, and, and they're trying to talk them into coming back and living in the city. And, and my understanding is that they have offered $16,000 towards the purchase of a home if you will just come into this county, into the city, and actually buy one. Now, I have no idea if it's worked. No idea if it's worked, right? Manhattan, we don't have that kind of thing. People actually want to live here. I'm still throwing shade on Topeka. I don't know why. I have nothing against Topeka. <clears throat> anyway, that's kind of what's going on there. And, and Lincoln, Kansas, a smaller town, just I believe it's west of here, is that right? Um, they have offered free land if you will come and build a house. Here's your lot. All you have to do is build something there. Uh, and you ask why? Why all these incentives for people to do this? And it's because cities know that they need people. And, and Jerusalem in this time of Nehemiah's time knows they need residents to, to fill this city. They need it for protection. They need it for financial flourishing and so on. And, and, and despite the nearby Jewish population, right, recognizing how important it was, we need to rebuild this city, you know, the, the Lord's city. We need to rebuild this Jerusalem walls. And, and yet they don't want to leave their homes out in the suburbs, they would have never used that word, right, to, to go and populate the city, especially in an era when people do not move very often from, from where they're from, which is very different than our own time. I mean, how many of you live within an hour's drive of, of the place you grew up? Just throw your hand up. A couple of you, you're like two miles. <clears throat> yeah, John is, I know that. So a few of you, and I think that's fantastic. But it's, it's very rare in our time today. And, and, and anyway, so you can see, you can begin to see that Nehemiah's intentions here, right, are to repopulate the city of Jerusalem. Now, now look at verse 5. <clears throat> what does God do next? It says, Nehemiah says, it, well, here's what Nehemiah said. He says, then God put it on my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled. Now, now first of all, notice that Nehemiah uses that personal pronoun, right? Not just God put it on my heart, but my God put it on my heart. It, it tells us something about this closeness, this relationship that Nehemiah understands he has with the Lord. It's not this detached thing, but it's personal. You, you and I should probably use that more often. My God, my Lord. Not because he's only ours, right? Not that we're taking that, but, but to understand in the way that we relate to God, to, to speak of God in that, that personal manner a great deal more often. Uh, to remind ourselves of, of just the closeness we have. He's my God. Uh, now, the other thing that we see here is that he says <clears throat> that God, his God, uh, put it into his heart to do something. And this is not the first time Nehemiah has done this. You remember back uh, Nehemiah 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verse 12. He said, and I told no one what my God, again personal, had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Now, you remember what he was doing then, right? The Lord had put it on his heart to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the city walls, and we've seen that actually occur now. And, and this raises a question for us, right? Could God or does God put things in your heart today that is related to his personal will for you? It can be an uncomfortable question for us, right? Derek Thomas, who, by the way, is a solidly reformed brother in Christ, uh, not a charismatic by, by any means, he, he answers that question with this emphatic of course. Of course God does. And he follows it up by, by saying, when God has a particular career for a person to undertake, he bestows an interest in the field of expertise. When God plans that two people should marry, he blends, the, blends their hearts together. 
And I'll, I'll tell you, right, I mean, it might sound weird to some of you, that the Lord put it on our hearts to move Manhattan and plant the church about 10 years, 10 and a half years ago, right? Part of that was guilt trip from Travis, right? But, but eventually we actually agreed with them. And, and I believe God did similar things for the Dunnings and the Shanahans who came out at the same time as well. Now, the, the desire, understand this, the desire was in accord with Scripture, by which I mean Right? God reveals in his word that planting of churches is good, it's right, it, it's a worthy thing to do. We, we, in other words, we weren't claiming, you know, God, God is sending us out to Manhattan to start a nudist commune or something like that, right? which would be different. Um, <clears throat> further, the, the elders at Redeemer supported the inner sense of call when we, when we tell them that, as did the presbytery when we said we have a, a desire to go and plant a, a church in Manhattan. And, and I say this because um, it's not... It's not always charismatic to say the Lord put it on my heart. And I know that can be weird to us sometimes. So, sometimes, I was, I was talking to a PCA guy, a good friend of mine. Anyway, he, he said sometimes we are, um, rather than Trinitarian, we are Bitarian. And we forget the, the active work of the Holy Spirit in our, in our life. Now, now, and keep this in mind too, right? This is how so many of the missionary names that you, you know, respect really have began the works that they have begun. You look at guys like William Carey and Hudson Taylor and Corey Ten Boom, right? Uh, you know, who, who her family, right, believed that the Lord had put it on their hearts to go help the Jews that were, were living under Hitler's regime. Right? However, let me give you this bit of warning, right? As Derek, Derek Thomas said, following up his own statements, he said, emotional desires are not foolproof. It is possible to have emotional interest in someone quite unsuitable to be your marriage partner or an attachment to, to a ministry that's beyond our gifting. These should be viewed as temptations rather than experience of a divine call. It's a warning there. And so what exactly then did Nehemiah, or did God put into Nehemiah's heart, right? Um, simply put, it's a gathering of God's people. Bring all the Jews together and let's trace the lineage, all of your lineage, back to see, see where it goes. He finds this old document that he's going to use. It's a, uh, it's a list of names, right? This list of names in those families who, who first returned. This, this list comes from 90 years prior uh, under the leadership of Zerubbabel and, and Jeshua, whose name is in the list here, right? right? It happened in 538 B.C. and now we're 444 B.C., uh, 90 years later when King Cyrus permitted that, uh, this, the exiles to return from Babylon. Now, this list is meant to connect God's covenant people living near Jerusalem in Nehemiah's time to those who had come 90 years earlier, right? I guess I'm going this way. 90 years earlier, uh, and, and then who had actually, uh, right, tying them back to the patriarchs, tying them back to God's covenant people through, through all the years of God's working for his people. Now, again, Nehemiah's purpose is to learn, okay, who are the true Jews here? What are your, your roles in the, in the history of God's people here? Uh, in order to repopulate Jerusalem. That's what he's aiming to do. That's the long-term goal here. <clears throat> now, one thing that we do learn with, with these sort of list in scriptures, these genealogies, right, is, is that it shows us God's grace to God's people, even to, to you and I. It shows us grace to us that it travels down through real history, real places, in real times, right? This is, this is actual history. This is not just, bam, everything suddenly happens. But redemptive history has been through, through the, working through, through God's families, his people. Uh, Moses was real, Okay? 
a real person who lived. If you could get in a DeLorean and go backwards, you could meet Moses. Probably looks nothing like you picture him, but you could actually meet Moses. His soul continues even now. Jesus, our Lord, is real. His soul, his flesh are still real. And so Nehemiah is connecting the locals in this area to the covenant people. Uh, God, way back in Genesis, and, and you know, when God promises this land to, to Abraham, and only to Abraham and to, his, and to his offspring, and that's the significance here of trying to trace it back, because uh, he wants to know now uh, of every family, right? Are, are you a descendant of, of Abraham, of the promise? Where, where's your role in this? Or to put it another way, uh, there is continuity in the history of redemption. Remember after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, and, and Peter is preaching in, in Acts chapter 3, and, and the audience is, is the Jews, and he's not just, let me tell you about Jesus, this whole new thing, right, that you probably don't know anything about, right? He begins preaching to them, and he says, uh, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of all, all of our fathers, right, glorified his servant Jesus. He draws it all back to, so that they understand this is all part of the redemptive history that God has been doing since the beginning. And so Nehemiah is, is deepening the, the reality to these people that, that we are different than the rest of the nations. We're not like them. And I know you've all gone out and they've intermixed and, they, and they've intermarried and we're going to see that in some, some later chapters. We say we're not like the other nations. We are in covenant with God. We are called out to be different. And the same is true for you and I as the church, as God's people, that we, we are in covenant with God. Our lives are to be lived different than the culture around us. Which always raises that question for us, right? Does your life look different than the culture around you? All right, that's a question to, to go home and wrestle with today. Did, uh, you know, how does it look different, maybe? Now, now Christian, do you know that that your name is written in a list as well. Our Lord in Luke 10, 20 once said, do, do, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Right, if your faith is in Jesus, your, your name is on a list of the citizens of the kingdom of, of, of heaven. You know, your history goes back to this, this, you know, goes back to this list that we're looking at today, the one that's right in front of you. And, and, and maybe, right, a lot of us are thinking, well, not, not biologically like theirs were, like the way they're actually tracing it. And yeah, probably not. You're probably not related to Abraham by, by genetics, but in a far more amazing way than biological, right? For as the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3, 7 <clears throat> stated, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Far greater than the biological connection. Sons of faith, right? Or those of faith are the true sons of Abraham. Now, now let, let's consider the list itself. And remember, um, most of the people on this list, even at the time when Nehemiah is looking at it, are, are dead. Right? Uh, it's been 90 years. There might be someone alive. You probably don't remember much about it back then. Uh, he's speaking to a whole new generation, a whole generation that, uh, like every generation, is so bound to forget the previous generation, to forget what has gone on in the past, to forget what the Lord has done in the past. We, we, we Christians are sadly very ignorant of, of the amazing stories that God has done in church history, not just the ones in, in Scripture, right? We probably do a little better with that. Um, but just in general, in, in, in church history, right, our, our, our hearts would be greatly encouraged by reading about the lives of, of you know, the names I already mentioned earlier, Corey Tim Boom and 
and William Carey and who was it, Hudson Taylor, right? But, but also the, the Puritans and John Wycliffe and Martin Luther and John Knox and you probably know those, right? What about Anna Reinhardt? Anyone know that name? Yeah. Go look her up sometime, right? Augustine, Basil of Caesarea, right? Or, or more recently, the, uh, the Brother Andrew's book, you know, God Smugglers, things like that, to be encouraged. But look how the Lord has, has worked in the history of his church all these years. After all, these are, these are stories about men and, and women that you and I, we are actually going to meet and know in eternity. Blows my mind, right? To, to think, like, I'm, I'm going to know John Calvin. And I'll be able to ask him, do you prefer it spelled J-O-H-N or J-E-A-N? We know you don't want it J-O-N. That's the wrong way to spell it. Just kidding, John. Um, we're going to know them for all of eternity. These are, these are our lineage, our stories, just like the ones we see here in Scripture. Now, now, did you notice that the people on Nehemiah's list, they're, they're listed overwhelmingly, not, not by their vocation like we do in our culture, right? They're not like, and, and, you know, this family, they were sheep herders, and they made pots and sold them to people out of clay, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, instead, they're overwhelmingly listed by how they serve the Lord in worship and in the midst of the covenant community in, in general. I'll use Bill as an example, because he likes to be used as an example. No, he doesn't, right? Bill and Christy, though, right? We, we, we think of them as farmers. That's probably the first thing that comes to mind. Um, if we did things like, like Israel tended to do things, we, we'd say they are greeters and they are Lord's Supper preppers, uh, among other ways that they serve here in the covenant community. And I, I just find it absolutely in, intriguing how their way of serving becomes not their identity, but one of their identifiers. Here, here's how this family served in the, in, in the covenant community. Now, if, if, you, if someone asks you, right, to tell you about yourself today, you're probably going to tell them what you actually do, your vocation. That's kind of how we're wired to do it. I, I'm a psychologist, a professor, I'm a, a helicopter pilot, or a student, an endodontist, a, a physical therapist, or, you know, uh, whatever Travis does with computers is actually called, right? We, we, would you ever, though, like explain yourselves, right? I, I, I lead singing in my church, right? So tell me about yourself. I, I serve in the nursery during the worship service. Or, well, I'm, I'm part of this congregation, and I show up on the Lord's Day, and I, and I gather with my brothers and sisters in Christ, and we worship the Lord. And I know you're thinking, no one's ever going to really respond that way because it's weird, and it would be awkward, and it would be really awkward for anyone else to have to respond to that. Like, okay, that's not what I meant by that question. Yeah, it's weird. So what? Right? You believe that Jesus died and was risen from the dead. That's weird. You believe he's alive right now and he's going to come back in some crazy cloud kind of way. That's weird. You believe that you are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, right? With, the, with, with you know, a member of the Trinity dwells within you. You are weird. And God has called you and weirdly set you apart from the world around you. You're weird because of what the Lord has called you to, just embrace it. That's who you are. And also, use your gifts to serve the Lord, as we see in this passage, right? Or as, as, as Peter says in 1 Peter 4.10, right? As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's good stewards of God's varied grace. 
We all have a responsibility to discern, develop, and use our gifts for the benefit, benefit and the enrichment of, of one another for the glory of the Lord. And so let's do that. All right, so now in your bulletin, you can see these nine categories. Uh, the original leaders are listed off in verses 6 and 7. You see Jeshua and uh, Zerubbabel there. We don't know who most of these names are. We know those guys were leaders at the time. We're going to move through this a little quicker. Uh, the second category in verses 8 through 38, right? These are Jews who were mostly laymen, uh, known either by their family, member, family name or, or by the town that they actually came from. You know, the, one of the things I have found when I've been around smaller communities is you can say someone's name and be like, oh, the, the Jacksons? Is that the Jacksons from Clay Center? Uh, and that actually means something. Where are they actually from? Um, in 39 through 42, the third category, we see the priest. Uh, these are descendants of, of Moses' brother Aaron. Uh, they oversaw the service, the worship service in the temple and, and the sacrifices on the altar. And they oversaw the, the feast that the Lord had called them to. Uh, David had organized these families into these 24 groups. And the idea being that each, each family would take two to three weeks responsibility rather than it being their full-time job all the time. Now, apparently only four of these families returned from the Babylonian exile due to what's listed here. Uh, category four is the Levites in verse four. Uh, these were descendants of, of the patriarch Levi. Uh, they assisted the priest, and we're going to see that word assisted a lot, right? Categories five and six are the singers and gatekeepers uh, in verses 44 and 45. And then the, the temple, we talked about them already. Uh, the temple servants in verses 46 to 56 were assistants to the Levites, Right? And what were the Levites? They were assistants to the priests. So that means they are technically assistants to the assistants. But I bet they didn't write it down on paper that way. Uh, category 8 is the descendants of the servants of Solomon. And that's verses 57 to 60. These two were, you guessed it, they are uh, assistants. Uh, these did whatever was necessary for the worship of the Lord, right? It would have been things like cleaning up, all these little details that, that we don't generally write down or think much about, but, but cleaning things up, scheduling people, all the little details that are, are necessary for the worship of the Lord. Uh, the ninth and last category here are those people in verses 61 to 65, and these are people with questionable ancestors, right? Some of them are, are lay people and some of them were priests, and, and this becomes really a big deal for them because Nehemiah is committed to obedience to God's word. And that means the people serving in these roles, particularly the priests, would, would need to be descended from the right, the right lines, right? And, 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 and we see here, right, there's, there's over 600 people who can't prove their families were descended from Israel. And our American way would be like, you know, yeah, it's fine. You've been serving there anyway, right? But he's so committed to let's, let's, let's keep the word of God. Let, let's honor it in the way we're supposed to. Um, and, and as Raymond Brown says, he says, the rigorism here is not designed to preserve a pure race, but to protect a pure faith within a community of believing people who would later welcome God's Son, the world's Savior, and Israel's Messiah. You see, in, in the end, the, these priests were forbidden from partaking of the holy food, that food that was uh, part of the sacrifices in the temple, and they couldn't do so until they could, they could prove that they were indeed, you know, in the, in the, in the lineage, and the method that you see there, right, is the Urim and the Thummim. Uh, everyone's always kind of intrigued with those devices because we don't know much about them, right? We, we know that functionally they're, 
they worked something like sacred dice or a coin flip uh, that revealed whether they were indeed in the bloodline of the priest or not. It was a, a way of discerning the will of the Lord that would probably make most of us very uncomfortable. Uh, and, and so then in our last section, uh, there is a list of a bunch of totals. The assembly is 42,360. Uh, is this men and women or just men? We don't know. That kind of stuff is not revealed for us. Uh, e either, you know, whatever it is, they could all fit into Bill Snyder Family Stadium, right? Um, we, we also see the, the generosity of God's people in, the, in this passage here, right? This, this sort of <clears throat> contributing is a practical expression of our love and our obedience to the Lord. Or, or to quote Raymond Brown again, he says, Those who love God's word will not neglect God's work. And, and this is clearly sacrificial giving that we're seeing here. These, these are speaking about exiles who had not yet financially established themselves in a new location. They didn't know how they were going to make their funds. Uh, you might also notice here that Nehemiah, the, the governor, as he's listed here, adds a note about his own giving in verse 7. He kind of adds it in. It's, it's not for the self-righteous, hey, look how much I give. Aren't I awesome kind of thing. Uh, but as an example to them, right? Just like they were giving and generous, so are we going to be so? And, and since we really kind of ripped on the wealthy a little bit last week because they were conspiring uh, with Tobiah against Nehemiah, it's only fair to point out here that, that clearly there are many other who are wealthy and have been very supported and generous to, to Nehemiah and to the work the Lord is doing here because the, the numbers, the final numbers that we see here are far too high for it to just been your average, you know, Israelite to be contributing. And, and then and then it all ends by, by telling us in the last verse that these people are in their own towns. Again, making this point that look at this beautiful city. We've rebuilt the walls, the temple, but there's no one here. Very few are living in it. Now, Jerusalem in Nehemiah's time is a, is a foreshadow, actually, of a greater city. A city that you and I, who have faith in Jesus, will one day, one day put our roots down as residents. It's a the, the eternal city that, as uh, Hebrews 11.10 describes it this way, a city whose designer and builder is God. Already you are a citizen of this, this city, this kingdom. And so let's, let's live our lives today with the glory of, of God ever in our mind, as, as well as the flourishing and expanding of the Lord's eternal city. And, and how do we do that? Right? We proclaim the gospel. We, we speak the, the, the hope of the gospel to others. When, when the Lord gives faith, right, to believe that, that that's how you gain citizenship to this. Um, yeah, and so we, we see the Lord's working here. It's a little weird of a passage, but we see the continuity. We see God working through, through history, through his covenant people. We see him providing through the, the volunteering, the, the generosity of, of his people. We get to see so much of that still today. And I'll, I'll say, you know, it's been nine years. I don't have my notes. This is where Travis is like, you don't feel well today. Don't be saying anything. Um, it, it's been nine years, right? And, and to look back and see if it was not for the generosity of God's people, you and all those who come before you that have moved here and moved away and been part of this covenant community at times, if, if, if not for that, there's no way we would exist today, both financially and, and serving in the nursery and preparing the bread and, and all the other things you do, moving these chairs and everything. 
And so, you know, I, I thank you for that. I thank you personally, but I, I want you to know that I, I, I see the way you're serving the Lord and, and His church and the worship of the Lord, and I, I appreciate that. Let's pray. My God, my Lord, may, may we use our gifts, our skills, our wealth, and whatever else you have in your good providence bestowed upon us for the good of this whole covenant community, for the purpose of worship, for the purpose of evangelism, for the purpose of discipleship and fellowship and, and loving our neighbors and glorifying you as we live and contribute to this city and region you have placed us in, this, this army post, this campus, this place that you have set our feet. Father, we await the heavenly city whose designer and builder is God, a city that we even now are, are seeking to populate as as those wandering in their rebellion are called to trust in Jesus with all their heart and made citizens of your eternal kingdom. Father, please fuel our hearts with hope day by day. It's in Jesus' glorious name that we pray this. Amen.